Please turn the microphone on. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it's been great two days, and I was really impressed with the weather, as well, of course, came from Cleveland. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so, I'm going to talk about energy imbalance and colon neoplasia in the layman's terms to really link obesity and colon neoplasia. Uh, I'm a, a trained as epidemiologist, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a country doctor, I'm a family physician, so I really uh, approach this from a population and epidemiology perspective, I do have some collaboration with people doing mouse model, doing uh, the base, basic research work. Um, okay, so um, I think Chris has done that for me already. And uh, okay, so the uh, obesity and the cancer, actually this is started published in early 2002 from the ACS cohort study. It's really about um, 16-year follow-up over a million people in the ACS prevention study with 16-year follow-up, really it's, it's striking. So in terms of obesity, everyone knows that 10 years ago, a decade ago, it's really in the domain research for people in cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Not many people think of obesity has much to do with cancer. So this study really published early, I said 2001 by Eugene Kelly based on the ACS are really showing that obesity 
But in man, it's really any cancer you can think of, the total cancer mortality, it's mortality as surrogate for incidence. Really any, any cancer you can think of has increased risk of mortality if you're obese. And especially for men, the liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer, adenocarcinoma, and as well as colon and gallbladder in the GI tract. The same thing for women as well. And for women, especially the uh, endometrial cancer, kidney cancer, and assume that this really has recatalyzed the whole, the last decade, I would say, a big emphasis on obesity or energy balance and cancer by NCI. And uh, we were fortunate to have funded as part of the NCI energy balance cancer initiative as a cancer center. I will talk, uh, as a uh, center, we will talk about that. So I, I started my career in, uh, in Case Western actually in 2001 and really was really intrigued by this hypothesis. Edward Givenuti from Harvard actually proposed this idea that insulin resistance or low-grade inflammation is the underlying link between obesity and colon aplasia. And he, he proposed that really based on very limited data at that time, back in 1995, but he has acumen to really see the link, you know, the striking uh, uh, a similarity of the risk profile of diabetes and, and colonial aplasia and combine this idea. <clears throat> so I started my career really trying to tackle this hypothesis from more the epidemiology, genetic epi perspective. So the now it's commonly believed now obesity is a problem and convincing cause for colonial aplasia, colon cancer. And the idea is that the insulin resistance or inflammation resulting from long-term energy balance is the underlying mechanism really link obesity and to colony aplasia. The idea is you have energy balance and uh, you eat a lot and that's exercise, you have a positive, positive uh, energy balance. This obesity, obesity now is considered as a state of low-grade inflammation, which generates a lot of advocates and cytokines which leads to insulin resistance and inflammation, which can then activate or apparently activate downstream pathways, this colonial aplasia. So I started my career really trying to tackle this whole thing from uh, epidemiology perspective. So the first study I did was actually based on the Kentucky Cancer Registry, it's part of the CA Registry. I finished my residency there in 2000 and, uh, and went back and, uh, and uh, and the couple of ways the CR registry use their data, the population as a case. Uh, every three months, they sent their newly diagnosed colon cancer case to me, and we will long distance recruit those cases. And we also do a whole statewide random disk dialing to recording the controls. It's quite daunting at effort, but we did, we did it, and it's still ongoing. So we started this in 2003, and now we have about 1,600 cases. So incident colon, case, colon cancer only, we we exclude rectal, rectal cancer. Uh, we think the etiology is quite different in terms of rectal cancer with colon cancer. And we have about 20, uh, 22,000 uh, 20, controls. So we collected the usual epidemiology data, diet and, and physical activity, and also collected lots of biomarker stuff, uh, the DNA, plasma, serum, toenails. And as I said, I'm interested in the uh, interaction between genetic, gene and environmental interaction. That's my focus. So the first thing we did, I said, I'm interested in really actually in the insulin resistance and uh, colon aplasia link pathway. So one thing, the PR3 kinase. So it's, this is a Canadian <coughs> approach. So back in 2002, actually, a group in Harvard 
has identified a genetic variant in the PR3 kinase, the, the catalytic, uh, this, the regular subdomain. So the PR3 kinase has two domains, has P110 catalytic domains. That's actually, this has been well established oncogene in many disease, in many cancers, actually in the mutation rate. And if you look at the mutation rate, the PR3 kinase is highly mutated in many cancer solid tumor, including a colon and breast and, and brain. So, but the P85-alpha is the regular subunit. And at that time, there's actually study by the Harvard group that this functional uh, polymorphism in this subunit of P85-alpha, which decreases the P85-alpha, that's the regular subdomain of the, of the gene uh, enzyme expression, but increased binding to IIS-1. So, as I said, I'm interested in the insulin resistance. We take this on and look at this, whether it's in the genetic promotion links to colon neoplasia. So we did this in the first, the phase, early phase of the Kentucky study based on the 421 cases, the 483 controls, and then that shows demographics of the Kentucky study. And uh, so basically what it shows here, we actually look at this P85 gene, this specific gene polymorphism is functional in a sense, the, the minor allele variant is being associated with the gene expression and associated with downstream insulin signal by the Harvard group. So what take it on looks like there's about 20% uh, uh, allele frequency in the cases compared to about 14% in the controls. So we look at this in different way, in different models and base model, basic control age and race. And looks like it's about a 47% increase of risk if you have one copy of the isolation allele, the variant alleles, and then we look at the four models and testive model, dominant, recessive, additive, looks like the additive model, you have about two-fold increase. You will have a homozygous of the, uh, uh, of the uh, variant. And also with strategy by age, looks like the, uh, the association is a little bit stronger than those who've been diagnosed with cancer age 45, four or older. So, we got the results that was positive because the ideas are how you explain that. You have a genetic variant, potential functional, leads to the decreased expression of P85R for how that does increase the risk. So I actually called the guy who Harvard, uh, did this initial work and started to understand why. The P85R has a negative dominant negative feedback on the PR3 kind of signaling. That is that if you have active P85-alpha, I mean IIS-1, that's insulin receptor 1, the ligand insulin IGF-1, and this is substrate, activate phosphoric, uh, and phosphoric, will combine the P85 subunit. But the combination of these have no signal. But in a sense, this will compete, the dimer will compete with this P85-alpha, to combine with the IIS-1 and recruiting P110 to the membrane, then we'll, we'll catalyze the PRP2 to PRP3. That's the second messenger that leads to the downstream pathway. If you have a polymorphisms, leads to the decreased expression of P85-alpha, the inhibition of this one will be less, so that you'll have more signal on this part. So that's the explanation. So this actually, this has actually been proven that it's a case in the the study has shown some cells P85 is inactive P10 and the monomeric P85 alpha competes with the P85 alpha and P110 dimer to bind the tyrosine phosphorylation IIS proteins. And then the P85 suppressed, as I said, it's an active regulation of P85 
periodic kind of downstream uh, uh, signaling. And uh, in actually, the intestinal in the uh, colon neoplasia model has shown that in the P10 background, if you had a P85 knockout, and actually that's shown that. So it's in, so now we've we had a reasonable explanation for this. Now the genetic homomorphism result in the reduced P85 expression, which elevates the negative regulation of PR3 kinase, which active which will activate the PR3 kinase uh, signal downstream. As said, you know the PR3 kinase is oncogene that has been well established. So we then actually that's the Kennedy approach. We then genotype the the whole uh, loci cover very dense coverage of this of this gene. And really this is the only only point that come out as 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 positive associated with disease. And we reasonably think that this might be a functional genetic SNP uh, linked to a colonoplasia really through the insulin resistant pathway. So I, I fortunately have the chance to cover with John Wang who trained in Bergson lab had developed this very nice uh, technology. He can take a single cell lines and knock in but knock at one single allele and to interrogate the single allele function. So what we do now is we've got some sort of funding. We actually we have a screen, a bunch of colon cell lines, identify P85 by this polymorphism heterozygous, then try to knock in or knock out this methionine or isolucent alleles and do all these lab tests he'll be, he'll be doing in his lab to really try to delineate the functional relevance of this polymorphism in colonoplasia. So it's an exciting collaboration that's ongoing right now with, with a, a basic scientist. And um, so I want to switch gears. So as I said, obesity has been associated with colon cancer. And at that time in 2008, we asked a different question, whether you had two persons at the same age, like 30, at the same weight. 20 years later, one gets about 20 pounds, another, another one stayed flat. And what do you think? You would think that people who gain weight would have had a high risk for colon cancer. By that time, no one had done this. And although the case comparison is not a perfect design for tackling this hypothesis, in the questionnaire, we use the colon CFR answer, colon CFR questionnaire. I think it was used here by a lot of people here by Jan Barrington as well, that the colon family registry questionnaire for this. So they do ask, actually, what's your weight at different age group, age uh, period, in your 20s, in your 30s, your 40s, then at the time of recruitment. So which allows us to look at the change of the, the weight throughout adulthood, how that relates to, to cancer risk. So we look at this in our Kentucky population, and if you look at the total population, it's about actually 50% increase. Uh, if you look at the BMI at the time of recruitment, and then you look at the BMI in the, in the 30s, really kind of flat. You look at total population as well as a male and a female. But if you look at um, the change, <coughs> it's quite interesting. So we take the change between the recruitment two years before the diagnosis of colon cancer or for controls at the time of recruitment, and look at the change, body weight change. Since the, in the 30s, the, the picture is the same. You can look at, use the, use the uh, report BMI or body weight at, uh, in the 20s as the as the reference. The same thing if you look at total population for people has about 10 uh, 10 unit change of BMI, 10 uh, kilo per square meter change BMI is two almost 2.4 for increase of risk, 
And it's even more dramatic if you look at females. It's almost fourfold increase of risk if the woman has gained a lot of weight during the adulthood. And this actually led to a funding of our one funding allow us to, based on the data, look at really systematic how we tackle this. That is, that we look at obesity in the context as well the body will change and look at some of the, uh, the uh, growth factors and polymorphism. But we really look down the downstream pathway, the four pathway I uh, showed in, in, in the second slides. Really, the PRP kinase, AMP, mTOR kinase. And actually, we propose this as a candid gene, candid path approach. And we're fortunate to be included now in a U19 consortium uh, by a Steve <coughs> Grover at USC, really doing the whole genome uh, 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 genotyping. So, we're waiting for it's been done, but there's data transport and MTA, and it takes years to get from Michigan to. To, to me, it's odd. It's odd. So I'm, I didn't take your mind. I said, I don't want your mind. I just want to be genotyped. But I have to go through this uh, data sharing step. So I'm waiting for the results to be come back to us to analyze this, use a pathway and a structural equation approach to analyze this. All right, I want to sketch a little slightly suitcase. So I said in the the, the information and the insulin resistance, the underlying mechanism. And one thing we are really interested in, in everyone knows, aspirin prevent Colon, colon cancer, colonioplasia. And the the idea is that aspirin inhibits COX-2, the cyclooxygenase, which is the key enzyme that catalyzes the uh, the the uh, synthesis of prostaglandin. Prostaglandin E2 is the dominant uh, uh, mediator of inflammation. But then Cerebrex, which is COX-2 slightly inhibited, really inhibits COX-2, and in the last 10 years, uh, Sandy Marcus, who is a senior uh, colon cancer geneticist in our group, has, in his lab, has really established a downstream gene or enzyme called 15-hydroxyprostaglandin uh, uh, dehydrogen, or PGDH, as a novel colon suppressor gene. So he has a series of three papers published into four to six or nine in PNAS, basically, basically established PGDH as a novel suppressor colon neoplasia. So the idea is that PGDH antagonizes COX-2 downstream by degradating PGE2. So if you think about it, you have upregulation of COX-2, you have more sensitivities of PGE2, which, which, which is the mediator of inflammation signal. But if you have downstream enzyme, which functions as a degradation enzyme of the PGE2, if you lower down that, you have built up more PGE2. That's the, that's the uh, kind of simple thing. But anyway, so Sandy Marcus lab has established through a series of studies showing that the PGDH breaks down PGE2. That's the degradation, that's the function. And the PGDH is highly expressed in normal colon mucosa, but ubiquitously lost in human colon cancer. And the colon cancer cells transfer with PGDH lose a bit to form, uh, form tumors. And in his mouse model, in the APC mean mouse, a cross with PGDH knockout, and showing that if you have a, uh, that's the APC mean mouse background, you cross with PGDH, that's a white type of PGDH, and the number of colon tumor per, uh, per mouse is about 13, um, no, 1.3. But if you have a, a homozygous knockout, you have a knockout of PGDH, it really has a, a full increase of 
colon uh, tumor. And the same thing, if you let small bowel, uh, small bowel tumors, the same idea is you, you have APC mouse about 58. Well, APC mouse is really actually the genetic engineered mouse anyway. But if you have knockout, it's not for the PGDH, double the number of, of the uh, tumor in the intestine. So as I said, we asked a question, so, okay, so you have established PGDH as novel colon suppressor gene, whether PGDH is a susceptible locus, locus in the general population for colon cancer. So this allows us to interrogate this, uh, uh, examine this hypothesis in our Kentucky population. What I have done at into 2009, we basically take the, uh, uh, the Golden Gate validated all SNP at that time being reported about 102, spanning the uh, 50KB and 50 downstream of the PGDH locus. So we designed it in the, in the three-state design, and the typical design would be like this. You would have, well, you have a one population where you split the sample. So we, so we have the discovered sample based on the 460 cases, and then I said we have 102 SNPs. We take the top 10 SNPs, but we also build in a functional relevance validation into this. We get another six, nine patients independent of the Kentucky study, has a tissue biopsy with genotype built in as well, or the one or two SNP, and look at any of the SNP has a correlation with the gene expression, although that's not a proof of functionality, but does give the function relevance. So we indeed actually has type, uh, you know, we type this one or two genes in an independent 69 uh, patient who has no colon cancer, has normal tissue biopsy, allows us to look at the gene expression correlates with a SNP. Then we take that, we take the top 10 significant associated with uh, associated SNP, as well as a function relevance, take the next step called a Palmson SNP in a replication sample, and then we combine the sample together, use a facial test, combine different statistical tests, and come up with the combined analysis. And here's the result. So I showed the top 10 candidate based on discovery, and then we have a replication sample, as I said, and the top four actually has a positive, has a positive association with disease, and also the SNP, the variant, is associated with, in the right direction with the gene expression. But interestingly, actually, really, we couldn't replicate the finding except one, this one SNP here, so the discovery about uh, the author is about 1.71, and uh, and uh, replication is about 1.50. Combined is about 1.58, and it's that's a test of heterogeneity. So that's a single one come out as you know, uh, discovery validation as well as has functional relevance. And uh, so it's interesting. So this SNP act is about uh, 17. KB upstream in the promoter region of this gene. And people ask, well, this, this several GWAS been done, right? No one has found this. But the reason, we think the reason being because at least in our data, this SNP actually is right as I said, it's in the promoter region and it's in a poor LD with any of the neighboring uh, SNP. It could be that the GWAS has missed this. And I think that's the LD, LD part showing that it's really had poor LD with neighboring uh, 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 SNP. And as part of a GI spore project, project one, Sandy Marcus is really focused on 
developing um, a risk prediction modeling that's based on on the on the SNP. We're, we're doing more study now based on this, and I will tell I will, I will tell a bit more about what's the follow-up study later on. Anyway, so, so that's the colon cancer study. As I said, I do have a another program uh, really based on the screen colonoscopy uh, patient, and this was studied in 2005. We, we fortunately got the funding from NCI it's called the trans Research on Adjacent Cancer Center Grant, and we have three programs within the the trans Center Grant, and I was leading the the uh, project two really look at the same hypothesis, look at insulin resistance and the colon polyps adenoma, and kind of parallel to the Kentucky study. But this, but this synagogue allows us really to interact with people. So Joe Nadal, Center Marcus, really actually they do a mouse model. And uh, Susan Redline now has left now in Harvard. And she's really not a cancer person. She is a pulmonologist, really work on sleep apnea. And this has interest, actually, I'll, I'll show you some data, actually, kind of come into this sleep and colon cancer, sleep in a uh, cancer prevention field. So within the program, there's a lot of actually uh, pilot study, developmental, developmental project, really actually draw people from different disciplines, behavioral science and phys uh, exophysiologist and uh, mouse model guy and bariatric surgeon to work with us on this whole uh, theme, really the obesity to, uh, to cancer and how to prevent that. So the, uh, the same idea, but actually the, 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 uh, the, in, in the case control style of a cancer, when you have a case control study, you always worry about the biomarker stuff because the diagnosis of disease, you always worry about reversal causality. In a sense, if you look at the biomarker associated with the disease, you worry about whether it's a disease has changed the biomarker level or it's the biomarker level leads to the development of the cancer. So, uh, so we didn't do much within the Kentucky study because it's, a, as I said, it's a, it's a prevalent case control study. We worry about that. But this one is, although it's a cross-sector study, at least we, we collect the, uh, the blood sample before the diagnosis of adenoma by colonoscopy. So we allow us to look at some of the biomarkers. And here's the uh, review by Gantel, actually nicely done, actually that really you have a phenotype of obesity. So really actually the imbalance between your intake and output and then, this, as I said, there's many pathways now has been, but I think the insulin resistance and the chronic inflammation are the two predominant or dominant pathways people believe link the obesity to, to carcinogenesis. Underlying this many genetic pathways you can interrogate and the biomarks actually we are, in this track study, we really have done all of these. I'll show some data. Okay, so design of the studies really actually we recruit patients who refer to our medical uh, uh, system for screening colonoscopy. Basic patients are screen naive, either they have not been screened, no personal history of adenoma or cancer, or has not been screened in the last 10 years by colonoscopy or any other screen modality by uh, FOBT or, or sigmoidoscopy. So I think we recruit the patient and we, before they come for colonoscopy, we collect their very extensive uh, uh, epidata. Actually, we have five questionnaires so uh, the IFQ is based, I said, based on the uh, NCI colon CFR questionnaire. Then we'll have a FFQ and a meat preparation physical activity as well as Pittsburgh sleep uh, quality uh, questionnaire. Then at the time of colonoscopy, we collect the blood and, uh, and the urine sample 
And uh, based on the pathology report, and give us who are the cases, who are the controls. The case defined as patient who has uh, his, patho his pathology reported uh, diagnosis of adenoma. And of course, there's a hyperplastic serrated groups, and you can debate whether you can include this one. But we really take the adenoma as the case group, and in the control groups, so we can either very clean controls, or you can have hyperplastic group without adenoma as a control as well. So that's been doing well, and uh, so as I said, we're ongoing process for the track now. Now it's uh, continued mm -hmm. by uh, as part of our just four, and we added a collection of stool sample before the colonoscopy, which allows us to interrogate the you know the, the gut microbiome, how that relates to the obesity and as well colonoplasia, and we have some print data and it has a grant under review right now. Anyway, so here's a description of the. Uh, I think was first about 1,200 patients in the track study. And I said, we're interested in the insulin resistance. And at that time, really no one has systematically in the population study uh, insulin resistance in the, in, the, in the population. We look at the, we look down here, the home IR is really actually a calculation of insulin resistance index based on fasting insulin and glucose. And quality euglycemic clump very well. So we look at the HOMA IR. That's my main interest. Look like this. There is a difference between the controls and case. It looks like the cases has high value of a HOMA. That's the homeostasis assessment of insulin resistance. And looks like it's high uh, HOMA in the cases. And then when we look at this in a different way, um, uh, looks like you know glucose, insulin, both are associated with. Oh, I'm sorry, the insulin associated with disease, but look at HOMA IR, it's a really nice linear trend increase of risk uh, with, with, uh, with uh, adenoma. And uh, I mentioned to you that within the track, we have a project look at sleep and obesity. And Susan Wellline said that she's uh, a, 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 not a cancer researcher, but she's, she leads one of the projects within our track center. We look at biomark for obesity uh, in kids and adults. So one hypothesis is so when we talk about insulin resistance, clinically there's a metabolic syndrome. It's a, a clustering of several domains of disease, uh, including uh, insulin resistance, um, obesity, and the dyslipidemia and the hyperpressure. So we come up with a hypothesis that well, that's usually called syndrome X. Now we call this metabolic syndrome. So we call the term called syndrome Z. We thought that a sleep disturbance is part of the syndrome X. And we call the syndrome Z. And the really actually two models. So you can think that the syndrome Z or the ex expansion of metabolic syndrome really includes another underlying domain is sleep disturbance. So we actually showed data based on Sun Redline's cohort, showing that if you model the, uh, the insulin resistance and obesity and lipidemia uh, and hypertension as a second order latent structure with seven indicators, or the treating uh, sleep disturbance with four indicators as equal, and they have uh, the model fits okay. But if you hypothesize, you have a second-order latent structure. So you have the four latent domains, 
the user domains, and you have measure variable, that's what we measure. That's the latent structure. Then you say, okay, I have a high order syndrome syndrome Z, which basically, aside from the four domains defined by our syndrome, has a sleep disturbance domains, and will fit this model. It looks like this model fits a bit better than the than the model you think the five domains are equally a second order. So that's kind of provide the empirical data supporting that a sleep disturbance is part of the metabolic syndrome. And actually in pediatric patients, it has been shown that short duration of sleep is a very significant predictor of, of weight gain in, adult, in, in pediatric patients. And this led to, so Susan Brown basically convinced me to add in the Pittsburgh sleep question into my colon, sleep, uh, colon swimming study. So we did actually add in, when the, when the grant started, we added the Pittsburgh sleep study into our, into our uh, collection, and we look at the sleep quality and the risk of anoma. So from the Pittsburgh sleep questionnaire, you can have seven domains and, and also a composite score really reflecting the, the quality of sleep. But really what the sleep duration has come up really has significant association with disease. And here's what's showing that uh, if you compare the case of control in terms of average hour sleep, it's about 20 minutes difference. But really, actually, the 20, 20 minutes difference made a difference. If you look at the sleep per night for people who sleep less than six hours compared to those who sleep more than seven hours, and there's a 50% increase of risk. And uh, uh, this is striking. We got the results are really striking. Actually, it does change my own lifestyle, actually. I use uh, I'm, I'm a bad night person. Uh, I stay in my office at like 2 o'clock. But since then, I told my wife, I'll make sure I come back at 12, noon, at 12 midnight and get seven hours sleep. <laughs> and uh, uh, believe it or not, this is not kidding. Also, I changed my life as well. I haven't done much. I basically sleep a bit more and I walk. And I lost a lot of weight. And without much effort, I think that does help. So based on this, now we are actually, I'm coming with a behavioral scientist, uh, Shirley Moore, who is a nursing uh, uh, researcher, but she has developed this called uh, ecological model, family-based uh, uh, intervention. Really actually intervene, not on one thing. You know, for, for obesity intervention, either you focus on physical activity, diet, and, and a certain lifestyle, by her approach is really take a 24-hour lifestyle change approach, change the family dynamic, and we really add in this sleep intervention uh, uh, components into her, into her model, trying to see whether this 24-hour system, systemic change approach can affect, uh, can reduce patient obesity more effectively. So what do we do? We select people from the, the part of study and who have poverty, non-poverty, and, and cross, cross them with obesity and, uh, and do the intervention. Okay, so uh, as I said, you know, for the part of the study, we're really interested in some of the new biomarkers as well. The RBPP4 stands for retinal binding protein 4. It's a novel marker, actually. In, nine, in 2005, Barbara Kahn from Harvard has identified, discovered this, this RBPP4 as a novel biomarker. It's causally related to insulin resistance in the mouse model. In the group 4, group 4 is a group of transfer 4 is the key transporter, trans, transport glucose across cell membranes. And if the knockout, the knockout in, in the adipose tissue, specific adipose tissue, knockout group 4 transporter, 
and then somehow the uh, the uh, uh, mouse gets very obese, and they did some polyomics approach identify even with a specific adipocytes group four knockout, they identified a a, a circular biomarker <coughs> turns out to be RPP4, which at that time the only known function of retinal binding protein four is the binding protein for retinal in the in the blood. And but in a, in a series of the study by them has shown that RPP4 you know, has been really causally linked to insulin resistance. And the published paper in New England Medicine in 2006 really shown that the serum RPP4 levels are elevated in obese and type 2 uh, diabetes patients. If you use the resagate zone, which is a insulin sensitized and normalized, can normalize serum RPP4 levels, and exercise can reduce RPP4 by only in people who have lost weight, uh, who only for people. <coughs> insulin resistance has improved. So <coughs> it's interesting <coughs> biology. And as I said, really we don't understand what's the implication in terms of, of, of carcinogenesis. But my, my study really has shown the association. It'd be interesting to follow this on with mouse model. So what it, what it shows that in, in the state of obesity, increased RPP4 can impair insulin signaling in the liver but not affected PFC kinase, but really affected the PEPCK pathways. But in the muscle, it's through a different mechanism. It does not change anything about the uh, PFC, uh, I mean, the, uh, the group four does not change at all, but really decreases PFC kinase signal pathway. So uh, as I said, we took on this, look, measured RPP4 in our study. Uh, looks like, yes. I mean, Looks like the cases has, uh, on average, has a high level of RPP4 about 59, and in the controls of 51. So here's the results as from the regression models. That we, regardless of what we we, met, we we analyzed that, so we have the total population. If you including diabetes patient, we have about 99 patients who has been diagnosed with diabetes, because uh, been diagnosed with diabetes, been treated. We worry that RPP4 may not reflect the underlying level of RPP4. So by including the diabetes patient as well, excluding diabetes patient. But it really doesn't matter actually which we model that. It looks like there's a strong association between RPP4 and uh, risk of adenoma. And as I said, we did this driven by the hypothesis that RPP4 is a biomarker for insulin resistance. But it turns out it really doesn't matter whether you control for insulin resistance or not. And the, uh, the uh, association is about the same. Excluding patients with, with diabetes low down the beta slope slightly, but still, uh, still uh, uh, is, is associated with disease. So we look more close at this. This is showing the, the, uh, uh, this interaction between RPP4 and, and obesity. So we, if you look at the total of RPP4 for people, this medium of BMI in the general population, take a cut. If you look at people who are relatively lean with a BMI less than 27.8, the very strong, nice linear tr trend of increase of risk as the RPP4 level increases. So the twofold increase for those uh, in the third quartile of RPP4 if you have a uh, BMI less than the medium. But for people who are, uh, have a high BMI, it's really actually nothing. It's, it's really flat. A, Fat lines, no association. We're puzzled about this. To be honest, we are still don't have a good biological explanation for this observation, but it's there. So this this one, including the diabetes patient, 
And this, uh, this one does not include the HOMA, which is control for the insulin resistance index. But this one, including HOMA, it really doesn't matter. It's still the same thing, showing that the two, a two and a half fold increase of risk for those in their third total of RPP4. But again, for people who has high BMI, it's really nothing there. The same thing, excluding the uh, diabetes patient. So the papers under review now, as I said, I really don't have a good explanation for why this has this nice interaction between BMI and RPP4, but I think it's an interesting uh, observation that one need to be replicated, and it's real one. The other thing is what's the significance of RPP4 in terms of uh, colon carcinogenesis or carcinogenesis in, in general. All right, so uh, um, I'm also interested in, in prevention, but I'm not a wet lab scientist. And uh, so based on our study, and I engaged a group in China. They have a lot of money, and they can do the mouse model. Actually, they did this study for me as a collaboration. So the idea is that metformin, as you know, is the insulin synthesizer. Has been the many data has been shown now in the EPI study. Actually, for for, for patients with type 2 diabetes, if you take metformin compared to take insulin with something urea, the risk of colon cancer and other cancers is much decreased. So vitamin D also has been shown efficacy in cancer prevention, especially colon cancer. A lot of work was done here by uh, by John Barron's group here. So we have the hypothesis that what if you combine the two common use drugs, metformin and vitamin D together, in terms of uh, 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 prevention of colon neoplasia? So my my collaborator in China has done extensive work in the last three years. So it takes a long time. So basically, the two models, one rats, one's mice model. One is the rats model used DMH induced induced uh, rats colon can colon neoplasia, and then the DHM and DSS is a colitis associated mouse model. And what I've done is the the, the randomized uh, 110 uh, rats into 11 uh, uh, groups, and each group has about 10 uh, rats, and they have normal control. They have a positive control. And that's the dose of DHM. Then vitamin D3 has different low, medium, high dose, basically 30, uh, 100, and 300. That's the dosage. Then metformin has a low, medium, high dose, 40, 120, uh, 360. Then we have a com three combined dose group with medium of vitamin D, low dose of metformin, and low dose of vitamin D, and medium dose of metformin and then the medium dose of vitamin D and the medium dose of metformin. So that's one uh, experiment. Um, the second one is that we did this in two models. <coughs> one's rats, one's mice. And this one's basically DHM, DSS induced model. It's a, it's, it's a colitis associated uh, mouse, uh, 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 mouse uh, uh, model. So we have five groups. It was normal. I'm sorry, this is up, up, up. So this is a normal group. And then what the DHM, DH, DMH, DSS control, the positive control group, gave uh, 2% of DSS in the drink water. And then the vitamin D medium dose and metformin medium dose and the combined. So it's quite interesting results. And I show, uh, this is under review right now. I'm showing some of the results to you. Um, here's normal control here. If you look, right here's a normal. But then the positive control 
is here the DHM, DSS, and the colitis, uh, the mouse model showing a lot of particles here. But then vitamin D, vitamin D group, medium D, does decrease the number of powder formation in the guts. But metformin alone, medium D, does do much in terms of the number of powders developed. But if you combine them together, it really has a synergistic effect. And we look at the tumor, <coughs> uh, tumor number here on this bar. So you look at the positive, positive control, that's for the DHM, DSS, and then this is good with the combination. Vitamin D does decrease number of powder uh, formation, but then the combined further decrease form compare this group combined to the vitamin D, vitamin three group. So it's really shown a synergistic effect. So we have to, uh, has also done some more work on this. Looks like vitamin D three potentiate the chemoprotein effect of metformin by activating AP, MP kinase pathway, the inhibitor mTOR pathway. But then the M, uh, metformin actually potentiate the vitamin three chemoprotein effect through a very different pathway. It's, it's not through the PR3 kinase or the mTOR, it's really through the, the vitamin D receptor and the beta-catenin pathway. Um, so it's uh, interesting results. Um, and uh, we follow up on this. Here's some more results showing that in, in, the, in, the rat, in, the, in the rats model, we look at the number of tumor, uh, 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 that's creeps, number of aberrant creeps, and aberrant creep fossa per colon. And looks like if you look at, you can look at normal, uh, the DH, DMH control group, and it really there's a dose response rate if you look at vitamin D, the number of, uh, of total number of colon uh, decreased as the dose of vitamin D increases. The same thing for metformin from low, medium dose, high dose, the number of tumor decreases. And then if you look combined, you combine the medium dose of vitamin D3 and the metformin medium dose, and it's further decreased. And the same thing for the total number of AC, and total <coughs> number of cryptophosa. Uh, so this is really actually the mouse, two, two mouse, <coughs> two animals showing the efficacy combine the medium dose of metformin and vitamin D in the prevention of colonia This is the mouse model. You look at the incidence of non-invasive animal carcinoma in the mouse model. Really for the normal, we have 12 uh, animals, but nothing happens, of course. And you use a DH, DMH and DSS induce the, uh, the colonia pasia. About 40% will develop uh, uh, the uh, ad, uh, non invasive adenoma in the mouse, but then vitamin three reduces that, and the metformin reduces that. But we combine them together, really, none of them develop the, the neoplasm in the mouse model. So this acid is really showing synergistic effect. So we're trying to take this now to to human population, especially colitis uh, uh, patient with osteoarthritis or Crohn's disease, and the common practice right now is put them on the. Uh, NSAIDs or COX-2 inhibitor as a, uh, as a prevention. So we're thinking that the metformin and the vitamin D combination might have a place in terms of for people who have colitis uh, in terms of prevention. So we're trying to launch this study in China actually in, in, in human studies. Uh, I want to circle back to the, uh, to the PGDS story. So as I said, you know, so we have identified this potentially functional SNP in the, in the PGDH uh, uh, gene. And uh, so we want to 
look more in depth in terms of this pathway. <coughs> so within the track study, we have nice biopsy from, we have a, a research biopsy. We biopsy a 14 uh, uh, biopsy throughout the guts in four quadrants of 100 patients. As well as we have FFPE sample from about 300 cases, tends out to have a second biopsy. This distal to the index uh, abnormal tends out to be normal. And then we have about the same number of controls has a biopsy. Clinically, uh, or a warranted biopsy tends out to be normal. So we want to interrogate this in the, in the more in the, in the track study in animals. So the idea is that you, so the, uh, that's the pathway, the COX-2 and, and the thin size PG-2, then the PGDH will catalyze degradation of PGE-2. That's why PG, PGDH antagonize COX-2. But NSAIDs tends out to, of course, we know that inhibit COX-2 that can inhibit the synthesis, but also can upregulate this 15 PGDH. In a sense, you have a sandwich approach, right? You have a decreased synthesis has upregulated degradation that will that will help to ease off the burden in terms of uh, cancer development. And then the PG2 can combine the cell membrane actually has four receptors. And the vitamin D is interesting. The vitamin D, of course, affect you know, through the vitamin D receptor through other other paths. But now, actually, in the last I would say 10 years, some data, especially in plastic, can show that. Vitamin D might have an anti-inflammatory effect, just like NSAIDs. They can inhibit COX-2, they can upregulate the PGDH, and they can also directly inhibit the, the, uh, the PGE2 receptor, EP1, EP4. So we take the same approach really at collaborate with PLCO. That's a national trial, actually. Uh, uh, they have a nice uh, cohort of patients being screened. I wish I would have known this, know you group before, we can clap in the same way. So the idea is actually we have the Cleveland screen population, we use this as a discovery uh, uh, arm to look at uh, both the SNP and the reason the actually, I said we identify SNP actually in the promote region actually, but then there's an enhanced actually, the VL, very enhanced locus um, by Peter Cherry, you know, you know, you know, you know, institution has identified that the histone modification actually the PGDH one the target, and uh, so we expanded this search to about 100 kb upstream and 100 downstream, and the the, the M1 through the SNP study look at this uh, locus, but I said that we want to extend to the enhancer region as well as the promote region. So in the in the track study we use a discovery, and then we built in the gene expression validation components as a uh, function relevance uh, to of the SNP. Then we take this to the uh, to the PLCO sample as a validation, and they do have advanced anoma as well as they have a follow-up on incident uh, cancer cases. And we also actually measure vitamin D. The reason vitamin D, most times the vitamin E epi study we measure 25 alpha hydroxy vitamin D. That's not the active component components of vitamin D. It's really 125-alpha vitamin D3 is the active components of vitamin D in the circulation. And it's quite expensive. You have to use mass spec to measure that. And our core facility has developed a mass spec approach to measure the 125-alpha vitamin D, and which is much more expensive, but I think give us more information. 
you can get vitamin D measure, the 25 hydroxyvitamin D, clinically much cheaper, but we propose to use a mass spec approach to measure the components. Uh, this just been funded as a um, uh, study this month, actually. Uh, be excited to look at this. And um, there's a lot of opportunity for collaboration validation with your group, with your large cohort. I think we'd be happy to talk more and engage more folks here to do this. I want to thank the, uh, my club of many years, Tom Tucker, who leads the Kentucky Seal Registry and been collaborating since 2003, and my own group at Case Western and also Union Southern California. Uh, Steve Gruber leads the U19, U19. and the Graham Case is my molecular club and a very source of funding throughout my, my career. And I'm happy to take some questions. So, in terms of the biology, how sleep affect uh, carcinogenesis, there's a lot of hypotheses. One is the melatonin. The second is the circadian rhythm. Actually, that's the one we talked about is the circadian rhythm. And also, uh, cell cycle check. And there's a study showing that somehow the circadian rhythm is linked to cell cycle check. And that's a path we are drawing into now. Um, whether that's interesting. You have a TV, could be, could be there more sick and bad you eat food as well. Yeah. So one of them was that I think they kids that would watch TV and that would tend to eat more. Uh, also, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so we couldn't test that, but we do think probably the disruptive sleep is a major pathway. But again, we couldn't evaluate that in our study. So, um, but do you measure, the, uh, so we measure the physical activity, but it's also now they have folks in Canada not being validated, has a question to measure setting the lifestyle, whether you want adding yeah. to, you know, right. to tease Even out after, acetone. Yeah, so we did measure activity levels, and after adjusting for that, it, there's still an association. So you, add, you measure activity level, but there's actually no specific developed instrument to measure set in the that's line. That's true. Yeah, so that's, that's that's one thing I think worthwhile to look into. Right. And less sleep can also increase sedentary activity. Yeah. 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 Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. So in the um, previous vitamin D colon cancer prevention studies, were there differences in efficacy based on insulin resistance? Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. I don't think anybody looked at that. It's I don't know, actually. In a sense, whether the, uh, the trial, the study would be you, if you measure insulin at baseline, right? You look at efficacy and it's stratified by the insulin level at baseline. I don't think anybody has looked at this. I'd be interested to look at interaction. In, in a sense, the effect of vitamin B trial interact with your baseline insulin level. I don't think anybody has looked at this. Well, the vitamin does Studies do have samples of that. Yeah, that'd be interesting to look at that and whether the uh, 
the body be more efficacious for people who also have insulin resistance already. Or you can you can just look at if you have the biomarkers of, of to define the metabolic syndrome, and you can just you know as a proof proof of principle and stratify the baseline. Or why you can easily stratify the BMI or with hip ratio, then look more in depth if you have the biomarker. To uh, you don't have to model use SEM in a sense the the metabolic syndrome can be dichotomized. There's a criteria so you can give you uh, either yes or no. Just give some but in the structure model give you more give you more information. Um, but then if you have insulin, you can you can also that be interesting to look at. So do all the MSEGs have the same effect on PDGH or is there you know, very Oh, actually, it's interesting. I think the COX2 does not. The COX2 hip does not really actually have a whole lot. It's 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 controversial. And the Sandy Marks lab and in the mouse machine net, and then there's few people actually, and then the Andy Dannenberg's uh, in, in New York, and really didn't show that class two select inhibitor can, can re, uh, induce PGDH. So Sandy Marks as part of GS4, his project really actually do uh, screen the uh, chemical compound who can, which can be developed as drug. Right. To, uh, so he actually has identified a leading compound already. What is interesting though is the vitamin D can induce that in his screening. So, so would you try to just upregulate PDGH and not interfere with COX2? Is that the idea? Or yes, yes, really target it to. So it's really actually the, the sandwich approach. So, but you know the uh, uh, aspirin is kind of, you can inhibit the COX2 as well as induce. The PCH that's what give you give you you can look I think the, the idea is that you will well the problems of ANSYS cause diabetes, that's what we worry about, right? So if you somehow you can lower the dosage or or spare the COX two and uh, well who knows? I mean that, the diabetes is one thing that has hampered the use of well it's a lot of talk now actually, especially the group from uh, from Harvard, um, Andy and the chain and group from, from England really propose and push that aspirin use as a population level, almost like like heart disease for prevention of colon cancer. But I think the problem is the GI side effect. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Just, just one more question. Are there? Are you aware of um, instances either in the in the mouse or rat model or in humans where people have used the metformin vitamin D combination for established colon neoplasia? Uh, I think there's a lot of studies being done, actually published already, that quite few in, in people take metformin, but in terms of combination of metformin vitamin D, I don't know. So metformin has, um, the first study was published from the UK, they have this very nice nationwide uh, practice-based uh, data so they have actually the first one. I think it was probably Lancet about a few years ago, and then uh, diabetes care. Few studies from Europe all showing that, and uh, metformin intake definitely actually has a beneficial effect in terms of reduced risk. Called, but in terms of combination with vitamin D, I don't think so. All right, thank you. Thank you.